Hi, I'm Grant Speed, and this is the Interim Leader Podcast, brought to you by Audra's Interim, the UK's leading provider of interim management services. For nearly four years now, IR35, the UK government's anti-avoidance tax legislation, is something that every public sector interim and those that have engaged them has had to contend with via the off-payroll legislation. Much to the indignation of the UK's independent workforce, now three years ago, this off-payroll working rules were announced to be implemented into the commercial sector. Despite the announcement last year to delay the introduction of the legislation due to the pandemic and, and obvious economic downturn, this coming April, the legislation will come into effect for all commercial organisations deemed medium or large, and the independent workers with which they engage. However, from our experience, only a small pool of private sector clients are currently aware of how it will affect them and what will they, they will need to do in order to ensure compliance. With me today is Nicole Slowey, the Operations Director at QDOS, to discuss how it will affect private organisations and what you can do if you think a role you are in or are recruiting for falls inside of IR35. QDOS is a leading contract insurance firm specialising in insurance and advice for UK-based contractors, freelancers and consultants. Importantly, the organisation boasts an extensive knowledge of IR35 and off-payroll working legislation. Nicole, welcome to the Interim Leader. Again, thank you for having me today. Well, thank you for having me back again, actually, so, which is great. So look, let, let's address the elephant in the room, because we did record this podcast just about a year ago. However, we, we've heard there was a 12-month delay just a few weeks before it was due to go ahead. Can you talk us through perhaps why this decision was made, what, what the consequences of that decision have been, and if there have been any further changes that we should be aware of over the last 12 months? Yeah, so I think that at the sort of outset of the kind of the COVID-19 pandemic, the early to mid-March last year, the government kind of recognised that there was a lot for businesses to contend with. The government knew that there were going to be a kind of series of measures that they were going to need to introduce and consider for organisations in the, the private sector and that actually rolling out the legislation on the 6th of April 2020 would in fact, in their eyes, have been a step too far and given organisations another thing to contend with that otherwise you wouldn't have had time to give their appropriate attention given the other challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic represented. Now, we did go through a series of further kind of legislative steps following the postponement announcement. I think it's important to note that at the point where the government and the Treasury announced the postponement to the legislation, that in fact the legislation wasn't finalised and it wasn't in statute. So there were a couple of further debates and discussions in the Commons following the postponement, but all of those um, were effectively rejected. And we got to the point where we went through the further due process and in fact, saw the, the finance bill become the Finance Act in July of 2020. So I effectively put the legislation into statute, but with an introductory date of the 6th of April 2021. So as far as where we're at now, compared to where we were this time last year, the legislation is there. It has a start date and it is confirmed as going ahead. So we know that Jesse Norman was specifically asked a question about two weeks ago as to whether the government was anticipating a further delay. And Jesse Norman said no, on the basis that the legislation was there, the HMRC had been going to great lengths to ensure that medium and large organisations were suitably educated, which to HMRC's credit, 
the, the communication and the education piece that they have actually been rolling out since the postponement is definitely enhanced from what they were doing last time round. So, so the last 12 months haven't been wasted. Look, you talk about Jesse Norman saying it's definitely not going to be postponed. Do you believe that? Oh, it's such a tricky one. I think that, like I say, to unpick that out of what is now the Finance Act would be difficult from a legislative policy perspective. It's possible, but there are a number of steps that the, the government would need to follow in order to effectively remove and or amend it as part of what is now the Finance Act 2020. Organisations have had that increased amount of time. The economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is, is worsening. For a piece of legislation that three years ago was set out to introduce somewhere in the region of 1.2, 1.3 billion pounds after a two-year period of implementation, I think that the Chancellor would be in a very difficult position to suggest, in fact, that now would not be the most appropriate time to introduce that. I don't think anything is ever 100% in stone just now, but we are in as strong a place and definitely a stronger place last year that we're looking at an introductory date of the 6th of April this year. Okay, thanks, Nicole. For some of our listeners, I think it'd be important to talk about IL35, the legislation, and then the off-payroll legislation that's come in. Could you give us a short history of uh, IR35? So I think the important thing for organisations to have an appreciation of is that IR35 in itself is not a new piece of legislation. IR35 in its original form was introduced um, back in the year 2000 and was specifically introduced as a means of addressing what the government thought was a way for individuals to circumvent paying the appropriate taxes. So contractors or individuals working for a client organisation would be in an employed basis on a Friday and come back to that organisation on a Monday in a um, limited company capacity. A common term at the time was a kind of Friday to Monday contractor. And I think for those, the increase in utilisation of contractors as an engagement model, the drivers behind that weren't always commercial for the organisations engaging the contractors, but also from the contractors themselves. And I think that certainly over the years, as other aspects of tax legislation and tax thresholds have changed, such as the changes around dividend taxation and things like that, from a financial and a commercial perspective, it is not as lucrative for individuals as it previously was to operate via a, a limited company. So the introduction of the legislation was to kind of drive out that, that utilisation of limited company contractors as a vehicle to avoid payment of taxes. So that introduced by the government back in 2000 and largely was unchanged for a very long period of time. So you're talking probably somewhere in the region of 13, 14 years where responsibility sat on the shoulders of the individual contractors themselves. They were both responsible for assessing their own IR35 status, as well as being um, financially liable if they made the incorrect status determination over that kind of 13, 14 year period. We had some years, probably in kind of 2005, 2006, where we had an excess of a thousand cases in the UK um, and I think it was 2010 2011 where we had 12. So HMRC's ability to actually administer the legislation effectively when you have a very wide net of, of limited company contractors in the UK was somewhat challenging and from the the kind of 2013 2014 time frame we saw some changes as a piece of legislation that probably in the last five to six years, HMRC have been trying to better um, to a mixed effect of success. 
that sort of culminated in the introduction of the reform in the, the public sector in 2017, where the full premise behind it is actually we are going to take away the responsibility and liability from the individual limited company contractors themselves and put that upon the organisations that are engaging them, so the, the end client utilising the services of the contractors, and any other party who is acting in a capacity as a fee payer, so very typically a recruitment agency. The position that HMRC has taken on that was very much driven by their inability to police it on an individual contractor by contractor basis. And actually the change in the legislation has made it much easier for the government to police and manage the legislation because they can seek out as opposed to individual limited companies on a one-by-one -one basis where you have IR35 investigations ranging up to kind of two to three years sometimes. Um, important to know that the principles of the legislation and the basis upon which IR35 status is considered isn't changing. It's who is responsible and ultimately liable that's changing under the reform as well. Thanks, Nicole. Is there any rationale why they introduced the legislation into the public sector before the, the private sector? Like I said, they introduced a measure a few years previous to the introduction of the reform in the public sector, which set out to bring a greater level of control and kind of compliance within the public sector for the, the utilisation of limited company contractors. There was a notable case where it transpired that the head of student loans was in fact a contractor. So that in itself was actually a bit of a prompt to the, the public sector assurance process that required public sector bodies to communicate with their contractors and their contractors assert that, yes, I have considered my IR35 status and that I am in fact outside of IR35. So I think that from a reputational perspective, the government saw that having public sector organisations and heads of public sector organisations acting in a capacity which they deemed to be a means of kind of tax avoidance was in fact not the way to go and that the government department would have a greater level of control and influence over introducing such changes. And effectively, the public sector was always going to be a test run to see how organisations actually reacted to the introduction of the legislation. So I think that Definitely going into the introduction of the reform in the public sector, there was always the expectation that it was going to be rolled out into the private sector and that it was just a more gentle, softly, softly catchy monkey way of actually introducing it across the board. And it gave the, the, the government the ability to introduce the legislation, assess how effective they felt that it was, and then also potentially make some tweaks to when they were more widely rolling it out into the private sector, which they have in fact done um, under the legislation now. So I've got two questions as a result of that, Nicole, then. Firstly, if we, you know, if you were to cast your mind back four years ago to January of 2017, you know, versus now, what does preparation look like? What's the experience feel like going into the public sector and then obviously with the private sector coming up? And then secondly, you know, I, I'd appreciate your views on what impact it's had on the public sector over the last four years. So I think 2017 compared to 2021, as far as organisations preparation, I think that naturally organisations in the private sector tend to think more commercially. They are thinking about the operational implications of introducing any sort of knee-jerk, very risk-averse approach, as opposed to some organisations in the public sector by their very nature 
banning contractors making blanket determinations because they felt that they couldn't be seen to be taking anything but a risk-averse approach. I think that organisations in the private sector have the benefit of seeing how the public sector rolled out its programme. So there's lots of high-profile instances of some organisations getting it very wrong and not starting their exercises and their projects on the, the right front foot. And we saw lots of examples and cases of contractors effectively thinking with their feet in the public sector and actually walking out. And we know that both anecdotally from the organisations that we worked with, from a lot of the independent reviews around the impacts of the public sector reform, that it did in fact actually have a knock-on effect to the delivery of key projects in the public sector. So I think that private sector organisations are very aware of that. So their management of the introduction of such processes is much more sensitive to the wider implications that it can have and that appreciation that it's not just about making a determination and ticking a box. It's actually thinking about, okay, we have a compliance responsibility here, but is there a potential opportunity for us um, a supplying capacity? So we've seen lots of opportunities for managed service providers, for example, where clients are looking for a greater level of control and support around their supply team. We've saw clients use it as an opportunity to be seen to be a client of choice because they're actually introducing very compliant IR35 practices. And I think that private sectors themselves feel like they definitely have a greater amount of flexibility to be able to do that compared to what the public sector probably had. But that's not to say we didn't see good examples of introduction of legislation in the public sector. We did, but it was very much new to absolutely everyone. What I would say, and this is something that organisations need to bear in mind this time, that very kind of specific risk-averse position around contractor bans or alternatively no rate increases for those that are inside, that line did not last long. And organisations in the public sector recognised that they needed to be more flexible in their approach because their kind of very risk-averse stance actually prevented them getting, not only having an operational impact on key projects, but it in turn affected them getting future good expertise, skills and resources back into those organisations. Things seem a little bit calmer now in that space. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that there's, there's definitely a lot less panic. At one point in time, we actually thought there was a chance that private sector legislation was going to be introduced in April 2019. So we've had that mindset, I think, definitely in the, the private sector, that it was something that organisations very much needed to get ahead of. Given last year's postponement, that's not to say there aren't still organisations who aren't fully prepared, there definitely are, but I think that it's been something that organisations have had on their roadmap, it's been on the horizon, organisations have built up that better appreciation and understanding, so actually, after all of the challenges that we've gone through, whether it's been Brexit, COVID-19, GDPR in the mix as well, IR35 is that thing that organisations have that appreciation for and accept, okay, we actually just need to get ourselves to a point of, of being ready. It's a new piece of legislation and we need to incorporate it into our approach to risk and compliance on, a, on an ongoing basis. So I think that's, that's certainly helped. Right. Can we move on to the, the CES tool? So the CES tool is HMRC's tool, check employment status tool. Yeah, yep. check employment status for tax. That's, yep. For tax, sorry, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about it and has it evolved? 
CEST, which was originally launched as the ESS. So it's had a rebrand throughout when it was initially introduced. And actually, when it came to fruition as part of HMRC giving organisations the ability to consider tax status ahead of public sector reform, was actually a development off the back of an application that had existed for quite some time that actually was very, very underutilised. It has gone through several iterations. I think the biggest points of note on CEST are it was still being developed when it was launched in the public sector. Organisations were using it as a means of considering the status of their contractors whilst it was still being worked on in the background. It did at the time and has continued to come under a significant amount of scrutiny for a number of different things. So at the outset, it asked a very, very limited number of questions. It had a very, very specific weighting on substitution, um, greater than what likely most IR35 specialists would put on substitution and isolation. And the nature of the, the algorithmic approach of the, the tool meant that you could get three or four questions in and the assessment would stop. So actually, what was happening was you weren't necessarily ever having the opportunity to fully consider all of the detail of the engagement because it would very promptly give you a response. It has been developed. They have lessened the weighting on substitution. They have increased the consideration around financial risk, which is more of a tertiary status test. But we still have a lot of challenges with it, notwithstanding. It doesn't incorporate mutuality of obligation into the test. So one of the key status tests is mutuality of obligation. And as far as HMRC and HMRC's test is concerned, they assume that mutuality of obligation exists automatically. Now, that is directly against case law. And that's the thing to bear in mind is there's no statutory test for IR35. It's all based around case law. So that's where we've derived our three key status tests effectively from. So substitution, mutuality of obligation and control. So HMRC CEST just assumes that there is always move. So that actually immediately means that going into a determination, it's potentially always going to be weighted towards an inside IR35 outcome. The kind of limitations to the fact that it is a digital decision so there's no ability to take into account any of the new specific nuances that would particularly exist, for example, in particular sectors or taking into account a, a particular contractor's individual circumstances. But back to the point of there being no statutory test for IR35, it's notoriously subjective. So you need to be making sure that you're allowing for all of that key information to be presented in order to make sure that an accurate determination has been arrived at. And I think one of the kind of the, the final key points and issues with the, the application is that it doesn't always give a determination. So it can give an inside determination, it can give an outside determination, but it can also give an indeterminate determination. And at that point, it actually doesn't leave organisations with anywhere to go. And, and our concern has always been that by giving no answer, what you are potentially pushing organisations down an avenue of I'm just going to go back through it and see if I can get a, a different outcome. And that's where you start to move away from organisations taking reasonable care that is required when considering status and actually effectively gaming the tool, which you can quite easily get a feel for if you've had the opportunity to use it a few times before. So I think that there are lots of, of issues with it, despite HMRC's efforts over the last few years to actually enhance it and improve it. I think it's definitely better than what it was before. So I think that it's important for organisations to remember that it is guidance only. It's not mandatory. Um, there are examples of 
HMRC trying to have um, assess determinations removed from evidence as part of first tier tax tribunals. So HMRC themselves said, nope, we actually are, are endeavouring to get this removed. And then in similarly, we've also had tribunal judges actually refer to assess determination as irrelevant. So again, back to the point around how IR35 is actually policed and what an investigation could lead to, which is a tax tribunal, that we have evidence already of that being dismissed both by judges and also HMRC trying to remove it from evidence. So these are the types of things that organisations definitely need to bear in mind, have an awareness of when the HMRC party line is that we will stand by a determination that's made using CES. And that's not always going to be the case. If you look at what has happened with NHS Digital, as an example, they were subject to a, a, a liability bill of a rent in the region of over £4 million as a result of using CES. Now, we don't know the specifics around it. The details that are available publicly are limited, but it was an accrual in their accounts. And it's entirely possible that HMRC are never going to say that their tool is wrong or that it generated the wrong result. But what they will challenge, and it's possible that this is what happened with the NHS digital scenario, is the input into the tool and the organisation's understanding and interpretation of the questions that are being asked versus what actually happens in reality within that particular organisation as well. So it's not a bulletproof way of considering status, and, and that's the kind of proceed with caution type statement that we would always give organisations if it's the primary mechanism that they're utilising for making determinations. It's putting a lot of onus on the client or somebody within that organisation to have an understanding of case law and HMRC regulation. What would you advise twofold an organisation do? And, and, and this is an opportunity where I think we'd like to hear about the services that QDOS provide as well. But what would you advise both an interim manager and an organisation do at this stage? Organisational side, do not solely rely on CEST. There are a, enough well-experienced specialist organisations like Kudos who can give you that expertise and support in making sure that both your organisation has the necessary training and education and has that proper understanding of status, but that we can actually in turn support you with undertaking those determinations. I think it's very unfair for HMRC to expect organisations, even when they have robust tax functions, to automatically become IR35 specialists overnight. Um, the legislation and HMRC's guidance does set out that organisations can engage experts. And I think that it's important that, that businesses do do that and make sure that they are properly thinking about, like I said, the wider aspects of what the implications of the legislation are. So not only that you need to think about what you're going to do around making determinations, but that in advance of that, you undertake wider due diligence type exercises in order to have that appreciation of your current position get a view of what you could potentially do or what you perhaps have a propensity to do around repositioning how you engage contractors, which could help support a greater volume of contractors being considered as outside of IR35. And then look at, okay, actually, what is going to be our approach and our process for making determinations? And that's definitely where the likes of, of Kudos come in. And I'll, I'll speak a bit more in a second about the specifics of how we can help. And I think for a, from an interim manager's perspective, What's really important and what we always encourage contractors to do is that 
we appreciate that your situation is changing. You're going from being the person who controls the determination and the status and, and having that responsibility to it being an effect, something which will be put upon you by your client is that you, you consider your own position. You can have your status independently assessed. You can gather evidence around the, the current contract that you're providing if it's going to extend past April of examples of where you perhaps have utilised a substitute or you can demonstrate that you have taken financial risk and use that to really have a, a well-informed discussion with your clients in advance of them making any determination. So I think that, that clients will appreciate the fact that contractors have had this burden and actually have quite a lot of knowledge. And I think certainly in the interim space, a lot of um, interim managers are very aware of what is going to make them inside IR35 versus what's going to make them outside IR35. And a lot of them are well-seasoned in making sure that they are very much delivering their services on that business-to-business -business level that perhaps some other sectors are less inclined to have that awareness of. So undertake a review, gather evidence and have that, that open and honest and well-informed discussion with your clients around what their approach is actually going to be. And again, clients can, like I say, reevaluate and reposition how they engage contractors compliantly. And that can be the benefit of, a, of an outside IR35 determination. So a lot of the ways in which we work with clients in that space to, to kind of help them with that is either by a combination of our consultancy and advisory services where we can go in and take that holistic view of an organization's utilization of contractors, look at where there are perhaps risks, make recommendations around changes to working practices, to contractual positions, to processes, right the way through to actually designing policies that set out how an organization is going to engage a contractor. And those sorts of programs of work can extend to involve hiring manager, education and upskilling, right the way through to in turn then positioning the, the kudos status review facility as that means of mechanism for clients undertaking assessments. And unlike HMRC's tool, the kudos facility involves the contractor in the determination process. It involves the hiring manager or head of business line within that client organization validating that position of working practices. And really importantly, involves a well-versed, experienced IR35 consultant taking all of that information into account in order to arrive at a determination, which is then subsequently verified by the client. So it demonstrates the client has taken reasonable care. You are meeting your obligations by issuing an SDS through the supply chain, providing rationale for that SDS, as well as having that wrap in then of the, the client dispute challenge process, which is also required as part of the, the legislation as well for organizations to have. So there's a whole host of ways in which like Kudos can support organizations with those types of services. And certainly for us and for me and the work that I've done in the public and private sector over the last few years, there is no one size fits all. Organizations operate very differently. Their utilization of contractors can change from one business department, actually, never mind the organization to organization. And we have that knowledge and that insight and that expertise and more importantly, firsthand experience of making sure that the compliance work and the solution that's implemented into the organization is fit for purpose and works in line with what the organization's strategy is going to be around IR35 compliance and the utilization of contractors within that business going forward. And, and to be clear, um, Nicole, as well, that, that if QDOS say that the status determination statement is outside IBIA 35, then you underwrite that decision 
through the insurance policy that you provide. Yeah, that's exactly right. So our, as you alluded to in your introduction earlier, we are an IR35 status and insurance specialist. We have experience in insuring IR35 risks in the contractor space and have done for 20 years. And more importantly for us, it is our parent company that is in fact the insurer. So Kudos has the visibility right the way through the entire process from the compliance assessment, issuance of the SPS, right the way through to review and acceptance of a claim to actual representation against an HMRC in an IR35 inquiry. So organisations benefit from the comfort around knowing that the risks are further mitigated via the insurance policy with the additional benefit of all being under the kudos banner and the kudos wrapper. That's brilliant. I know there's a mechanism for people to dispute the SDS. Do you assist in those situations? Yep. Or do you plan on assisting? Yeah, so as part of the, the offering of the Kudos facility, one of the things that we were mindful to design and have always done right the way through the service since we first launched it back in early 2017 is make sure that it's fully reflective of the legislation and that both clients and suppliers and contractors have the ability to both demonstrate their compliance but also participate to the fullest extent that they can in the process. So it was important for us that with the requirement based upon the changes within the rollout to the, the private sector, that there was a way in which for us to assist clients in managing the requirement to have a challenge process, but also a way in which contractors can exercise their right of challenge under the legislation as well. So built into the facility and quite naturally and, and seamlessly introduced as a disputes mechanism. So if a contractor receives or if and when, sorry, a contractor receives a status determination statement from Kudos, from their client via the facility and the process that the client has engaged in, if they are in disagreement with that determination, they can, from an email that they receive with their SDS attached or from their online account, can log in and raise a dispute. And then that kickstarts that disputes process, which both the contractor, the original Kudos consultant who reviewed the SDS, as well as the client, participate in the fulfillment of the review of that dispute and challenge which can encompass the contractor going through a reassessment process, which the client in turn signs off and reviews and verifies and validates again. And some of the kind of specific aspects of that process also actually give the client the ability to channel disputes to a specific department. So we have some clients who want to kind of segregate responsibility around that to make sure that disputes are perhaps signed off at a more senior level within the organization. So all of the functionality that's built into the facility and the system allows for that to make sure client can demonstrate it, it meeting its obligations as well as giving contractors the ability to exercise their right so that within the, the kind of time frame of the 45 day window clients have to respond that within a much, much shorter time and a very efficient process, we can demonstrate that challenges have been raised and addressed and closed out and gives clients and contractors and the suppliers the opportunity to then move forward on the basis of what that final determination actually is, whether it's an inside determination or an outside determination. That's great. Thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us today on, on the podcast. It's always fascinating to hear from you. I always get the impression that you know more about IL35 than anybody I ever speak to. So, <laughs> so look, I think it's those wise words. We will be including a link to Nicole's details on our website when we publish the podcast. But if I can just say on thank you, for, I'm sure on behalf of the whole audience, thank you very much for joining us, Nicole. Thank you.